the term itself, career ladder, gives the perception that you have to go against rung by rung and there is a set way of doing it. There is a perception that an apprenticeship is either for a young person or again that you'd be starting again. It's about that supportiveness and being able to say, we're going to develop you into the best practitioner along the way. We're going to need really skilled endpoint assessors, you know, people who know what they're talking about in the workplace and have that operational capability. Keep learning, keep moving forward, reflect how far you've come and where you want to go and how you can get there. Hi, and welcome to Podcash, the portable CPD in best practice podcast from Cash. My name's Dawn and I'm the editor of Cash Alumni, the fastest growing network of current and future professionals in care, health and education. You can join us for free at cashalumni.org.uk and get access to articles from subject specialists and experts, e-learning to a discount and benefits scheme and lots of support with career development and your future growth. I'm Faye Gibbon and I've worked for many years in the earlier sector, probably over 20 years now. Um, my passion has always been children and I started my career really early on as a, an apprentice in a single nursery. I absolutely loved working in that nursery, working with the parents and progressed really, progressed quite quickly into a nursery manager um, of a small chain of nurseries and recognised really early on that I've also got a passion in teaching um, practitioners how to deliver exceptional childcare. And so trained as an assessor within that nursery um, as an IQA and then slowly moved across into um, teaching and learning um, for the biggest childcare provider in the UK, which is where I spent a lot of my career until most recently. Um, decided then it was time for a change and worked with awarding organisations on developing qualifications, writing materials, but also chairing and co-chairing the level two and level three apprenticeship standards. That's all really exciting. And I think especially to me as a careers advisor who often tries to explain to people that careers aren't linear anymore. You don't start off in a career and then just climb the ladder in that thing anymore. You can you can go over here and you can do a bit of that and you might decide that that's actually what you want to do and that you you might want to do that as more of your your time do you think there is still a perception that you you have to pick what you want to do i think there's that perception in every job um that you have to go linearly through your career that there is a career i mean that the term itself career ladder gives the perception that you have to go against rung by rung and there is a set way of doing it but what one thing that we really built into our apprenticeship programme um, when I headed up the apprenticeship programme is that it doesn't work like that, that there are opportunities and there are practitioners that still like to work hands-on with the children. Not everybody aspires to that next step, to be that room leader or to be that nursery manager, but actually they want to develop those skills, those knowledge that they've got and be an expert in a particular area, which is why we always ask them up front what they wanted to do to make sure that our apprenticeship programme really, really did meet those needs. And it might be that they wanted to be a SENCO and that's the area that they wanted to be. They didn't necessarily want to go down management. They wanted to be um, a specialist on behaviour management. Um, and it's about finding out from those practitioners what is it they want to be and move away from this, the only way that you can progress is to progress within um, up, up through management. 
But I also think I'm, I'm also a real advocate of practitioners using their skills and moving around the sector. Those skills are so needed in other parts of the sector and really transferable. And again, training providers, that's what they need to be concentrating on when they do train their practitioners is how can you develop those softer skills that can be working in the community, working with children in the community, or those practitioners that want to go to work um, as hospital play coordinators. And also one of the other areas that practitioners quite often want to move into um, is schools. That that's, There is always a perception of a school is going to be different. It's going to be nine till three. We know that's the perception. We know that's not the reality, but, but that's what they've got into their head as a, t a teaching assistant. Um, and it's about developing those school skills so they can move around that sector more fluidly. Yeah, and I think there's, there's probably quite a few people listening who have sort of just started to picture different places that they might want to work in when you're talking about being able to move their skills around the sector and try that in different areas. I think that quite often there's there's the idea that you have to start again if you're going to move into a different area so you know you, you entered um into for example early years as a level two practitioner and, and you started you know your career there or as you did as an apprentice and there's that idea that if you then moved into a school or moved into like a hospital setting that you have to go back to to wherever it is that that, that you started off and that's not true um that, that those transferable skills really do transfer into all of those different places to, to, to sort of let you go in sort of sideways. And I think that's one thing that the new apprenticeship standards are different to the old framework and they have got those behaviours built into the apprenticeship standard that are fairly common across the care sector, the care sector in general really. And so training providers now are developing those, those behaviours that are needed to be able to move across the sector because they're much more obvious um, within, the, within the curriculums that are being put together. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's one of the reasons that with Cash Alumni, we decided to make the Cash Alumni service for everyone in care, health and education, particularly early years education, you know, because all of those sort of career bits, they're all care and roles that all have very similar sort of behaviours you know that that idea that that those sectors generally will recruit on that sort of values-based recruitment model and it, a lot of it is about being able to to prove who you are as well as what you do um and a lot of that is is, is very intertwined um so to be able to give people a picture of all the different areas of the sector and where the similarities might be between those things is is really helpful. And I think at schools they don't get the careers advice with all the cuts that are in schools. They don't necessarily always get the career advice that um, that they need. And I always say to my daughter, you don't know what you want to be because you, you don't know what you want to be because you don't know what you can be. And it's about exposing them to what they can be. And unless they've got family, friends, or they know somebody. They're not sure what else is out there. So it's really encouraging now that training providers do start do look at careers advice as well um, and expose them to, to things that are out there that they can that they can aspire to be and move into. Totally agree. Like I think that there's also a lot of stuff that doesn't exist yet. You know, that, that there are so many if you think about the careers that exist now, like there's there's they weren't around when I was at school, you know, I couldn't have decided that I wanted to to be 
you know, a, a specialist in child neuroscience, you know, that that, that wasn't a thing, you know. <laughs> but we've got, you know, as the world evolves and it's happening on a much faster, you know, bit now, there are new jobs all of the time because we understand more about the world and about people every day. So I think we need to prepare people for for being able to to decide what they want to do and to make it happen you know we'll look at practitioners like Minnie Yonkvayer and um you know pr- practitioners um like Linda Baston Pitt who've gone on to in, in yourself you know to just go actually this is what I want to do there's not necessarily a, a line that takes us there but if I go like this and like this and then this and I take this bit here then I, I can make that a thing that that can be what my job is and and sort of you know shaping the future as we'll want it to be i mean it's involved so much since that since i joined the sector looking there over the years things have changed we didn't have specialist roles um we did we didn't have the recognition within um the, the sector didn't have the recognition and the parents used to drop the children off and you know it's that traditional we think you're a babysitting service so that was only 20 years ago that that wasn't that long ago um, and we've come so far to really professionalise the sector. And that, that sector also includes nannies, because I know that's the last time that we met. We met at the Nursery World Show. Um, and the, the, the nanny hub there was the start for nannies to be able to rec- be recognised as part of the sector, not, not the, lost, um, the lost sector. And also their, their campaign that they've got regulation matters where nannies need to be seen to be regulated because at the moment it, it's quite concerning and quite worrying that they're not. I was not. really shocked when I found out, you know, that like because it was a couple of years ago I went to um, the Great British Nanny Conference um, and one of the, the, the nannies who was exhibiting there with the, the International Nanny Association was, was it t- talking me through nannying as a career and I mean the idea that me with my knowledge of childcare having never worked with children or done anything with children but having read articles on cash alumni you know that's that I could probably pass the Ofsted test and register with Ofsted in like 20 minutes and be like oh I'm an Ofsted registered nanny not you know just and and, and you don't need to be Ofsted registered you could just put an advert on Gumtree saying I'm a nanny now and that that I found that really sort of shocking you know in in the there are so many really well qualified childcare professionals who can do you know and at the moment childcare professionals at an entry level you know still aren't particularly well paid it's not you know a, a well recognized job financially there's so many passionate and well qualified childcare professionals who i think if they knew a little bit more about nannying and actually that nannying isn't necessarily going to live with a posh family full time and doing their washing and all of the other stuff as well. That that it, it it's actually a really, you know, nice job for the right sort of person. I, I think nannying is where the earlier sector, um, uh, like full daycare regulated part of the sector was probably about 10 years ago, where there was that lack of recognition, there was that lack of career recognition, there was a lack of respect for the qualifications that they hold um, but I also think having spoken to the nannies on that day um, in, in the nanny hub they don't see themselves as the sector as part of the sector either which which is which is a shame it's sad to hear um, and it's about encouraging them as well to get confidence in where they do sit 
And that's probably because it, it's not mandatory for them to have a qualification uh, or a recognised qualification. They don't have to be regulated by Ofsted, um, as you've just said. So they don't see their place and they don't see where they sit. And being part of the Regulation Matters campaign, that's one of the things that we're looking at, is looking at putting a, a framework together for their training to say that they have been trained in these areas or they have got these qualifications or they do follow these codes of conduct that we're putting in place. So it's exciting times for the nanny sector. Do you think part of that's about educating parents as well on how to sort of look for a nanny? You know, it it, it isn't... that. There's, there's lots of things, I think, that, that we need to consider on that side of things as well because talking to nannies in, in the, the sort of interviews that I've done with nannies and speaking to nannies at events and stuff, like, I think one of the things that's quite scary for nannies and thinking about all of the sort of paperwork stuff is that parents don't often know what their responsibilities are for taking on a nanny, in that it might be that um, they don't know about sort of doing the checks that you've got to do, the right-to-work checks, or sort of how to register to, to be an employer and pay tax and national insurance or any of that sort of stuff and I think that when nannies are starting out it can be quite daunting the prospect of sort of shopping for a family. I don't think that they realise up front that they're the employer I think that becomes a bit of a shock to them um you know ha- having spoken to Trisha at Bappen and and, and and other people in Bappen it, it sounds like it's quite a shock to the nannies uh, to the parents so that um they are the employer um, they think that they put an advert out, they get a nanny. Like you said, the typical Mary Poppins, look, we, we, put, our, we put our advert out and we get this ideal person. But they, they are the employer and they're in a risky situation because they're on their own in the house with the children on their own. So you know, it is about making sure and educating that they have got those right to work checks. And also the nannying agencies that are placing them as well, because I I, I can see that there are varying levels of quality of, of checks, advice and guidance that are given by each nanny agency. So it's about standardising and putting some code of conduct and framework around governing really the nanny agencies as well. Yeah, and I think that, that there are some sort of ways that people can filter a little bit in terms of checking that a nanny agency is registered with one of those professional bodies like the association of nanny agencies or you know are are the 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 nannies that they're using registered with with bappen or with any of you know the the, whether they are getting a little bit of support with that professional side of you know the their their business because i suppose nannies are their own business that they're there to to provide that service and and to, to sell themselves to those families for them to then be employed but in terms of their development and all of that stuff I think that there is a little bit more freedom almost as a nanny to, to develop in a particular way you know we're seeing nannies that that follow different route ways I mean how do you think people can decide you know how how can the the figure out which bits of the sector that they want to to work in and try I think it's a great start to spend time with eight children of all ages. Um, and I know as part of the qualifications, you should really, there's good practice for spending time with children, not five, but that doesn't always happen. Um, and it really is important that we do go from all those ages because it might be that you find out that you like a particular age um, more than, than working with another age. But the only way you're going to know that is, is by trying it. Um, and also, I think... 
having the confidence and the conviction to go out and try different ways and different places. Sometimes it's, I'm an early years practitioner and the only place that I can work is full daycare or the only where I can work is as a um, childminder. But actually looking further afield, and, and, and it, is a, it is a confidence thing within the sector, um, because like you say, it's low paid, it attracts, um, naturally attracts people um, that follow for that low pay, that don't have the, the, the confidence to be able to say, my worth is more, and I can go out to parts of the sector, that they kind of stay with what they know. And I think it is about going going out and just trying, just just giving it a go and trying it because it might be something that you really, really enjoy. I think I see that a little bit when I'm talking to people who want to do more and who are looking at maybe that sort of room leader or supervisor or sort of manager level job and going, oh, but I couldn't do that. But if I ask them to tell us all of the reasons that they dislike the room leader they work under now or the manager that they work for now, they can give us some really good constructive feedback on what that person could do better and actually being able to recognise that that's the same thing and that being able to recognise sort of what that professional job would look like and actually that that you can sort of draw those criticisms and help to, to build something better is that you are, you are capable of being able to do that if you can if you can have those sort of constructive ideas so I think if people come into contact with services in their own lives you know like with their own children or, or in, in those other situations and they can they can review their experience and know sort of like from a professional standpoint what could maybe have been better or what was done really well that might be a nice indication that actually you are ready to start exploring doing something like that because you can objectively and critically look at it and that is that sort of academic benchmark you know we do literature reviews in in degrees and in, in master's studies and things because that ability to look at something through that lens is a marker as to your ability to to maybe explore it further i think the apprenticeship standard is is helping that um in the, the endpoint assessment um is all of a sudden being able to talk to people at the end that you don't know, and they've never had to do that really. It's, it's them showcasing their knowledge and their understanding in, the, in their, what they've learned along the way. And when, I, when I've seen people come out of their endpoint assessments, the ones that I thought were really going to shy away and not sell themselves and not sell the knowledge and the understanding that they've, and practical skills that they've demonstrated and built along the way, You've put them in that situation and they've come back out and they've gone, wow, I, could, I didn't believe that I would be able to talk about what I've, what I've talked about. And I was so excited to share my portfolio of what I've achieved. And I think that's going to play a part because all of a sudden there's an external recognition that's never been there before in, a, in such a formal way um, for them to be able to show, to demonstrate and show that. The other part of that is that talking about your learning journey and how you developed that we're going to need really skilled endpoint assessors, you know, people who know what they're talking about in the workplace and have that operational capability, but who can also recognise that the reception of that, you know, like when someone's talking about how they've done it, you know, to be able to reflect that and to make people feel good about being able to talk about their achievements. So those people like yourself, whose passion is sort of, molding and shaping and and helping other people to see their worth 
there's a place for them in this sort of new future of being able to assess that stuff because that warm person who will be able to sort of let people know that yeah this is this is good Sharon keep keep telling us the nice things and to bring that out of people that's that, that's going to be really important. I think that goes back to what you were saying earlier wasn't it about what jobs weren't around and being an endpoint assessor is so different the skills are very very different to being an on-program assessor and I think you know you, you've got to get their competency out in a short amount of time in a set way whereas an, an, an on-program assessor will, will look at that very differently um, and if they if they're not competent they go back they revisit it they you know go through different learning and make sure they've got the mentoring the support that they need but with an endpoint assessor really it's that snapshot in time to prove the competency and the skills are very very different um, so yeah that is a, that is a job that's appeared that that been created that was never there SkillsMiner has a great new addition to the Cash Alumni website. We've worked with SkillsMiner to offer access to their amazing tool that can help you to figure out what you might want to do next in terms of learning or which job you might be suitable for that you might not have considered before or even just to figure out what your skill set is. You can access SkillsMiner for free as part of your Cash Alumni membership. All you've got to do is go to cashalumni.org.uk and head to the SkillsMiner page in the professional development section. We keep talking about apprenticeships and I think that as much as we have talked about this in previous episodes that it's always worth talking about a little bit more that there is very much still a a perception that an apprenticeship is either for a young person or again that you'd be starting again that 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 you do an apprenticeship at the bottom level of something um but that's really changed as well hasn't it you can do an apprenticeship at master's level at you know at that level seven at that like sort of really it's an apprenticeship is just one more of the ways that you can learn whilst you're working. Absolutely. And you're right, apprenticeships, even the perception of them by parents, by schools, has always been, you know, you start at a level two, you work your way up. It's for um, the, the students that don't want to go and do their A-levels. But that, it's all very different now. And I think that's been really helped by the apprenticeship standards coming in and removal of the framework. So... With the apprenticeship standards, we now see a lot more um, level fives and sixes um, because it's because the apprenticeship standard is linked to a job role, whereas previously it wasn't it was linked to a qualification. So by linking them to job roles, it means that employers have chosen what job roles are available in their sector, but they've also then spent the time as a, as a working group and um, in consultation with the sector to define what those skills look like, what those behaviours and what those knowledges look like within that job so that's naturally opened up the levels and because it's opened up the levels it's meant that the funding around the apprenticeship is now available for the higher levels where it hasn't been before so that that was a real big turning point and landscape change for the apprenticeships when the, when the frameworks came out uh, the apprenticeship standards sorry came out so yeah that, that was a real needed and particularly in the early years because the level two and three has been developed um, and is live and, and, and is, is out there. But the level four, five and six are currently being looked at and being developed. They, they aren't concentrating necessarily on all of the management of the running of a nursery or the management of running of any daycare setting or childcare setting. They're looking at developing the practice as part of those levels. 
So again, it goes back to let's not have that linear career ladder of going straight into management. The apprenticeship standards looking at more in-depth curriculum and childcare. A lot of people get a little bit scared of going back into education. We've already talked a little bit about how, you know, there are people within care and education who might feel like they ended up there as a sort of second option or a because they couldn't. Um and I don't necessarily think that that's true. Um, I think that they ended up there mostly because they're amazing, and that 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 in a, in most instances is is probably the right place for them to be in terms of who they are. But that development and going back into education is scary because they've always been told the can't, which is why they might feel that way, um, because of the way maybe that you know, that academic side of education is still held in sort of a higher esteem than the vocational side. And like you're talking about apprenticeships being for kids who didn't want to do A-levels, but what's wrong with not wanting to do A-levels? You know, what, what I don't understand why we still hold things in that sort of less good than. But in terms of then going back into education, that can make it quite scary, you know, because we still think of it as being that classroom where people are going to look down on us or tell us that we've got it wrong or what is there, you know, what can people do to, to ease themselves back in or to maybe just show themselves that it's 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 not as scary as they might think it is? I think it's the skillfulness of the training provider um, in being able to draw out um, the apprentices, demonstrating how they can how they do their job, um, that their knowledge and skills, making sure that they do that in a real nice, subtle, supportive way. It isn't about going in and saying, right, today I'm going to and go with a checklist. And because that's quite frightening. Anybody that's observed, anybody that uh, is in that situation is going to find that frightening, no matter how many times you get observed. It's about that supportiveness and being able to say, we're going to develop you into the best practitioner along the way. And to do that, you are going to have feedback from me. Um, It'll be very constructive. It'll help you build on your skills. It'll it'll increase your confidence. But we're going to relate it to what you do as a job. We're not going to put you into a situation that you're unfamiliar with because we'll have made sure that we work with your mentor before that point to make sure that they've spent time with you. You've observed people um, carrying out that role. You've sat with them and so you actually understand why that, that activity, that task has been done that way. And before the assessor then even comes out to assess, they will have gone through that that process of making sure that they are ready. And I think the 20% off the job training has has always been there. Um, But it wasn't until it started to be monitored and regulated that it became a little bit of a stumbling block. Um, It's always been written into the qualifications. It's always been written into the apprenticeship frameworks. I think that the last 12 months and the way that apprenticeships have had to be changed in the delivery model, I think has been really good with the 20% off the job in that it's made people recognise that it's not about getting them out of the the setting and doing face-to-face. It is okay to do um, like teleconferencing of some description, a webinar, a short but also to look at the coaching and mentoring that they have on site because they will have it all the time. They'll be sitting with their seniors or their manager all the time being coached and developed and that all adds up to it. So it isn't about this scary classroom situation where you're going to be talked and, and spoken at. Um, it is about a, a cohesive approach of, 
have looking at it from coaching, mentoring, on-site as well. And if people aren't ready to to sort of show their cards to another human being and say, I'm ready to do some development or I wouldn't mind, you know, looking at this job up here, but it might need mean I need to do an apprenticeship or, or look at how we can do that. And they're not ready to have those, like conversations where they they tell people they're ready to do things because they're not entirely sure that they are. Do you think that doing something like some e-learning or sort of a bit of sort of secret development or stuff that that they can do sort of in their own time and that is flexible and that they can put up you know leave for a couple of weeks and come back to it do you think that 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 is is a way that people can sort of prove to themselves that they are capable of the wordy stuff yeah I, I think so and you do get people with those kinds of personalities that you went that go into a, a new situation and expect to be able to do something straight away whether that that is at work or not it's in your in your personal life as well isn't it you always get that one where they'll read and they'll go online and they'll like I said they'll do e-learning or they'll do absolutely anything before they walk through that door because they don't want to be seen as not that's, knowing that's it I'm a terrible collaborator like I, I don't I don't like working with people on things like directly like I'll do my bit and, and I'll contribute but I'm really terrible at sort of that like group work bit because I want to figure it all out before I share and that doesn't work if you're if you're working together on a thing you've got to share before it's ready that's how it gets ready um so yeah that's that that I suppose that that's that's from my perspective it's that it might be scary to 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 say oh actually I'd really like to do that before you know that for a fact that it's you're definitely okay to do that I think there's lots of things out there lots of ways of being able to do that now um, and, and if that's what makes them more comfortable or gives them more confidence to be able to move forward, a- absolutely. Um, but I think, again, there, that, that's about educating training providers or managers to, to think that that's a way of being able to encourage them to be able to take that next step. Um, I, I know when, when I've worked at, in training providers, um, we, we've seen people that are in the setting and that the assessors have gone up and said, that is absolutely fantastic what you've done. Um, what what level are you? And they're saying, you know, I'm maybe a level three or a level two. And it's like, do you know what? That was so good. Have you ever considered doing the next level? And sometimes it just takes that other person that's outside of the setting to be able to say, wow, that, that, that was just fantastic. And give them that encouragement. Something different, something that they don't I see. think, yeah, right. I think that's part of what... I want to say the problem um, in terms of like the, the sector in general and the way that we'll look at ourselves or the way that people look at their abilities is that because a lot of the way that it works in care or in early years education becomes second nature and it sort of just becomes embedded in your practice that you do certain things or you react in a certain way and, and it has to become second nature because co-regulation is such a huge part of that so being able to to recognize your own state of mind and, and and reflect that and and communicate in a certain way and have people you forget that not everybody does that do you think that is reflective of your experience in early years that it's that ability to be able to to tell people what you've done as part of that reflective practice that is sometimes the hardest bit. 
Absolutely. And, and I think that that's going back to the endpoint assessment. It's about them showcasing themselves in that endpoint assessment and being able to say, I have done fantastic. Um, I have done fantastic work. I can show you the planning that I've carried out. And yeah, we, we just not naturally as a sector, we don't shout about ourselves. We don't shout about um, the skills that we've got. Um, we, we just carry on caring every single day and we, we, we're not in the shouty sector um, and, and that doesn't help us sometimes, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't help us progress, it doesn't help us look at the wider opportunities um, because there are lots of opportunities and it would be nice to see hubs in regional areas that shared good practice, we're very much a sector of this is what we do in our nursery or this is what we do in our sect setting and we're not sharing that with anybody. On that note, if anybody would like to send examples of their best practice or things that they're doing well to alumni at cash.org.uk, I'd love to talk to you about how we share those through Cash Alumni because I think you're right, Faye, in that we, we, we do have to do more shouting about the things that we do really well and not just to the parents that that are, are the children are coming to nursery, but maybe even just taking photographs of those displays for parents or, you know, the newsletter that you're sending to parents, send it to me as well. And I'll, and I'll try and share them sort of on the internet and with that audience of sort of wider practitioners to be able to 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 do a little bit more of that. Because you're right, not only is it about helping other people to recognise the value of early years, but being able to recognise what good practice looks like within early years not because there's not loads of good practice, but because it helps people to see their own good practice for what it is and not just because that's what they do. And, and I think that happens more in the training side, the education side. So there are websites and companies where they are, they've are they got shared practice, good practice, things that have seen, been seen in inspection that are really good practice, but it just isn't out there in the early years. You obviously work in a role where you, you sort of work for a, a learning organisation, you know, work helping to train people or, or, or helping people to train people um, to do that sort of stuff. Um, do you miss the, the sort of hands-on bit of working in the sector? Absolutely, but I keep my occupational competency up, so I love to go back in and work with the children. I, I absolutely love it. Um, and... I think you can't you can't keep up with the changes in the sector without doing that. You have to live and breathe it. You're not going to know the challenges that those um, practitioners have on a daily basis and support them and help them if you're not in the middle. You think you do. You think you've got an idea. You can look at it from the outside, but actually, unless you're working in that sector day in day out, you don't appreciate you don't appreciate the challenges. And the good, there is absolutely fantastic um, practice out there. Um, absolutely, I do. Great. I mean, I think that's one of the things that people worry about when they look at development, isn't it? That, oh, well, I'm going to go off in this direction and I'll never get to do any of this fun stuff ever again or any of this stuff that I really enjoy down here. Um, but yeah, right, it is a huge part of that development to keep your practice up to date so that you are in the right place to tell other people how it works and you've got the credibility as well that you you, know, you can say to them we, we know what you're going through because we've spent time we've spent time in, in the sector and in, in the sector and i think the other message there though is that it's not you know people see this idea of that you learn 
upwards so like the level twos learn from people at level three or four and level people at level four learn from people who are level five and six but you know you go back into sentence with all of the learning that you've done and all of that sort of qualification base that you've got and the fact that you train other people you go back into sentence to learn from those people at level two and three about how it is right now and what's changed since you did your level two and level three children don't learn like that children learn if you think of i've done my dissertation when i've done my degree on the benefits of siblings learning from each other and how children learn from older children from younger children it's not about being with everybody that is at the same level the same age as you it's an experiences it's about mixing up your classrooms mixing up your groups when you're doing teaching so the conversations happen from experience and position from different places yeah and i'm loath to admit this as the as the smart older sister but my younger sister has taught me so much as an adult that I never expected to learn from her because mine and my sister's life experiences since we lived together have been have, have been completely different. She's got two children for a start and I, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. So like our, our experiences have been completely different and actually learning just from that different life experience from someone that I trust, you know, to, to, to understand really what the different hurdles are that people face and actually sort of the richness of, of of the differences. So even in terms of like colleagues and friends, you know, like we might come at issues from a different direction or, or have differences of opinions on something. And, and for me, it's really fascinating to, to understand how they see it that way and to be able to learn a little bit more about actually the topic that I thought I had a really firm understanding of and a really firm viewpoint on to now think about how they came to their opinion and use that information I might now feel differently about it and I never expected to. I've seen it in practice um, I went over to the Netherlands and um, spent some time in nurseries um, over there and they do horizontal learning so they mix they deliberately mix the children's classes um, so you have babies in in a room with children up to four and they're all mixed up and it was fascinating it's absolutely fantastic to watch the learning that t- that took place was out of this world and it was all so natural it wasn't it wasn't forced um, and yeah and, and and they don't go to school till they're seven so the children have that experience right up till the age of seven of learning from children of all different ages I suppose that there are parallels there when we're talking about nannying, you know, that there, there's a lot of obviously mixed age households that have nannies who have to have those amazing skills at developing both of those children and, and, and planning activities that satisfy both of those children. And I think there's a lot of parents learning now um, the value of being able to adapt things and actually how difficult it is to plan learning activities that that do all of the things that children need whilst you know being able to still be engaging and fun and and you know the, the patience and everything else that's required um do you think that both the understanding is increasing through sort of the current situation that we all find ourselves in um but that maybe attitudes might change towards like childcare, um towards that idea that you know that it's much more than that and it's not just childcare, it is child development and and teaching at sort of all of the levels. Do you think we are going to see a change? I think so. I think that 
the parents will have more of an understanding um, because, you know, parents of young children, they're busy. If they're dropping them off at um, a setting, it's normally because they're going to work. So they don't have time to appreciate it. They just they would just see the setting as a convenient way for their children to be to be kept safe during that day. And I think there will be a lot more appreciation because the world has slowed down a little bit. Um, they've been thrown into homeschooling um, and, and, and looking at after that their children during the day whilst trying to do the homeschooling and education so I, I do think there'll be a real difference I think when um, the Duchess of Cambridge released the building foundations um, for life project that she's working on one of the things that that came out from that was that parents didn't ap always appreciate the role that early years played in the children's development and the fact that their brain development is the most rapid in naught to two I think that will also help, but it came at an, an absolute great time and it wasn't planned and scheduled um, to coincide with COVID, but I think it really will reinforce that importance of the early years from a parent's point of view. There is obviously a lot of stuff around like sort of the children's brain development and the, the speed that that happens in those early years. Do you think that... Do you think people understand the physical development that's guided by early years practitioners in terms of, um, you know, supporting the development through the, even the way that children sit and move and, and sort of hold their weight to help them with that sort of stability and being able to develop muscles and hold, you know, all the different types of play to help to develop the motor skills in their hands to be able to hold a pen or a pencil? Because... I don't think I'd ever thought about that at all um, until I started reading, you know, all of the articles on things like Loose Parts Play and Play-Doh and, and it not just being about brains and creativity and, you know, like being able to, to think about shapes and structures, but actually about those physical motor development skills that are so important for just human and in general. I think it's much more preparing them for school in the, in the respect of, their, their development, um, their knowledge that they have, rather than the, the actual softer development that children go through. Maybe that's more for us to do on the the, the, the way that we share that best practice and, and, and get people to, to talk about what it is that they do for a living so that they don't... I find it really disheartening when I talk to, to, to people who work in early years when I say, you know, like, oh, so, so what do you do? And they go, oh, I just work in a nursery or I just work in childcare. And it's my least favourite word like for anyone I don't think anyone just does anything you know I, I think that there's huge amounts of skill in in all the jobs I think we're seeing that a little bit um with supermarket workers at the minute you know that idea that not only are they going out and putting themselves at risk every day and all, but that there are now lots of applications for supermarket jobs and actually supermarket workers have quite a, a high skill set in terms of their ability to 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 manage cues and people and logistics and to do that sort of stuff but in the same way as childcare workers and people working in early years and, and in education in general they've got to bring their whole selves to work every day they can't you know come and pretend you know you, you can't take it out on the people that you're working with and you have to still be able to process all the things and keep going into you can't just you know stop and go and have 10 minutes and make a cup bar and give yourself a shake you, you, you have to be on it all the time um and, and I think well-being is another thing that I see and change a little bit within early years and care and the focus on like sort of 
you can't pour from an empty cup and you have to put your own like oxygen mask on first almost um is becoming a little bit more bit more prevalent do you think that the the sort of burnout and the the pushing yourself to extremes that does happen within care and early years do you think that that's linked to that sort of it's just what I do yeah I do I think it's that they think they just have to trudge through every every day and ignore any of their feelings or ignore how they feel it's it's also as well about skillful management and the care sector earlier as I'm both health and social care is very different in that your manager is, has normally been a practitioner because that's the way they have to, the skill set, the qualifications that they have to have. So you quite often get managers that are in that position that want to be managers, but have still got a very focus on early years and their management skills aren't probably as sharp as they needed to be. Whereas in other sectors, you're trained to be the manager and you can go and manage, you know, you can go and manage, like say a supermarket or you could go and manage in an office. It doesn't matter, your management skills are the same. So I think that the management training within companies is so important. And I think they don't know what to do with the health and well-being of the staff because their priority is making sure the children are safe, cared for, and they meet all the regulatory requirements. And that's that's how they've been trained, that's where their background has come from. So there is a big piece about making sure that if you, you do go into management that you understand what that management role looks like. Yeah, I think that's actually really important. I spoke to um, Lucy Lewin a couple of weeks ago who um, runs an organisation called the Profitable Nursery Academy um, and it's um, that idea that um, she came there because she became a manager through that very root way and actually the business side of it was the stuff that was really difficult, you know, like keeping on top of like pay and income versus outgoings and and that sort of because that's not how you become a nursery manager necessarily by being able to balance books and talk about cost versus expenditure and stuff and so she did loads of professional development and and got really really good at that bit and now supports other nursery managers doing that same thing like what can managers do to make sure that they have that focus on staff needs and being able to recognize those things like if if there are like nursery managers or, or or managers in care listening to this and i think actually that's me like i'm all about the kids and and their development and i might have been maybe slightly neglectful of or i can see that my staff my morale might be low that people are struggling because of the situation and i don't know how to help them how how do they figure that out what support is there for managers to develop those skills first of all you need a strong team that are in your room um in, in the room with the children so you you will need your, your level threes or your senior room managers or your room managers depending on the setup to really understand what that quality childcare looks like so not everything has to go to the manager and they need confidence then to know that it's been dealt with, um, that it's working fantastically, everything is as it should be in the rooms, and it just gives them that time then to be able to focus on the other things. Um, and more structured wellbeing um, meetings. So there is a time where you can talk about you know, with your manager how you're feeling, what are you struggling with, what support that you need, um, but also your progression. We can't just look at it from a negative point of view. Those conversations still need to be positive and like, how, what can we do to support you to progress or give you the skills to be able to manage these, these situations more confidently? Um, 
and not have the manager running around and being relied upon across the whole setting because that's where you start to see the cracks and that's where things can potentially slip through the net because the manager can't be everything to everybody um, and then that that will give them some some time to be able to focus on and the overall really looking at the setting for, from from an overall perspective there's loads of stuff that you've said today that makes ridiculous amounts of sense and that I could probably we could probably have a podcast on any of those topics sort of as individual ones because I think there's lots of it that I could talk about all day can you tell us where people can find you if they wanted to maybe find out more about how they can do some development you know how how can they find you and your service and what they do to to be able to get in touch yeah so we've got a website it's a bio learning academy um, that focuses on the early years um, and health and social care e-learning. Um, so you find us at www.avail-learning-academy.com. I'll put a link down in the description box if people want to, to have a look for it. Is there anything else that you would want to tell people that you haven't had the opportunity to say so far? Keep learning, keep moving forward. I know it's tough. Um, I know the sector is tough. It's very demanding. But sometimes just just take that time, that five minutes with a coffee to sit back and reflect how far you've come and where you want to go and how you can get there because sometimes time just takes over and you, and you end up sticking with what you're, what you're doing. But the opportunities are far and wide and just take five minutes. That I think is good advice for every, every, all of us at the minute to, to take five minutes and to have a good think about where we want to go. Um, thank you so much for your time this morning it's been really really lovely talking to you and thanks to you at home don't forget for more great content tailored towards those working in care health and education it's free to join our network and you gain access to some great articles videos and resources to support your career and some information about career development as well as our members discount and benefit scheme and if you'd like to feature on a future episode of podcast please get in touch at alumni at cash.org.uk Until next time, take care.